Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Fugue for Thought podcast. I'm Alan, and uh, if you haven't already subscribed or liked us on Facebook or shared the podcast with your friends or any of those things, then do all of those things. Um, leave a comment or a like on uh, Facebook or in iTunes. Uh, it helps. And uh, I'm really excited about the episode today. If you read the blog over the weekend, you saw that we have some new installments of the String Quartet series. Uh, we start with Haydn, uh, his Opus 1 and 2 string quartets. That's a lot of works in there. Uh, and so for our next episode of the podcast, I thought it would be uh, fitting to continue with another string player. Fortunately, I know someone, online at least, um, a couple years ago we did an interview on the blog. Her name is Jess Wyatt. She's a violist, and uh, she was very agreeable to being featured on uh, the podcast. So uh, we had a little chat in which I tried to dispense with the amateur questions about the viola and listen more to experience with teaching and performing and repertoire and all of that. Um, so she was patient with me in that regard and had some really wonderful and informative and interesting things to say about um, experiences and her teaching and performing and everything. So this is the first half of our our very long conversation, um, but she's very enjoyable to listen to, and I had questions and we chatted a lot. So um, let's get started. This is the first half of my conversation with Jess Wyatt. Hi, Jess. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Um, so we've kind of, I don't even remember actually how it was that I came across your name for the actual article that we did. So oh, yeah. I don't um, even recall how that happened. I don't recall. I think it was possibly that you found my blog online ah. um, and you you wrote to me, I think, by email and said, yeah, you said, would you like to do a, an interview? And I said, yes. A and then I did. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite, um, <laughs> there was quite a lot of, a lot there. That, <laughs> has recently, questions. that has recently been used in the, uh, what was that? Oh, yeah. The British, the British Viola Society wrote, uh, I can't remember how they got in touch with me. I'm a member of the British Viola Society, which is, it sounds very grand, but it's actually not that grand, I think. <laughs> uh, the president is Louise Lansdowne. She is a violist who um, works at Birmingham, Birmingham Conservatoire. And she, uh, she actually marked my diploma recital. So that's how I know her. Um, but she's, she's a prominent viola um, player and professor at um, the conservatoire there. So um, I was a member, uh, I've been a member for a, a while. And it was some sort of, um, they, they processed my payment wrong. And so I had to get in touch with them. And I said, by the way, I've, I've got a new Facebook page if you would like to um, include that in any of your, you know, newsletters. And they wrote back and said instantly, and they wrote back instantly and said, yes, we would like to include that. Would you be able to write an article for our newsletter? And I said, oh, um, yes, all right. Uh, well, that, <laughs> so, that that worked out, I guess. Yeah, and so I, I wrote one for their January, I think it was in, back in December. I wrote a little article about myself. Um, they asked for 500 words or something. Um, so that was the first one, just, just introducing me. And then for the, I think it was a February one, was it February, January, February, can't remember. Um, we used, um, we revised, well, I revised um, our interview, right. which was the few before interview, which was a very long interview. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> so I, I went back through it and um, tried to edit it down a little. Um, and I think they got back to me and said, could you, could you cut it further? And I, I didn't have time 
going to do that at that point. So I just said to them, just use it as it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm cool with the fact that not everybody will get to the end, obviously. The questions that I wrote, I remember um, being kind of unabashedly ignorant of, you know, a lot of those things. Would Would members of the British Viola Society not be kind of far more aware of those things than... than Yes. I mean, yes. They, they wrote back to me and said, could we cut out the question, which is what, the di- what is the difference between a violin and a viola? So yes, sure. obviously, uh, violists being in that society, I mean, it's more like a club, I guess. Um, they would know all, all about repertoire, all about the viola already. Um, so obviously, some of that stuff wasn't relevant. Um, right. But I think, I think it was quite nice to have that because it, it was, it, it sort of, it's a more getting to know you thing. And it was almost like I wrote an article on my blog, um, which I've been doing since I was at college, which is uh, quite a few years now. I think it's back in 2011, 2010, 11. I've wow. had the blog, A Viola Player Writes. It was originally started, actually, uh, for my university, well, my PG DIP, which is a postgraduate diploma, which I did at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Um, and it was a f- reflective writing component that we had to do for our degree. Oh, so wow. I, had the, I had the bright idea of starting a blog, which I used for two modules, actually, a community music module and my sort of um, master's performance uh, module. So I wrote about stuff sort of regularly on that and I just continued it after I graduated. But it used to be RSAMD Reflections because the, the college used to be called the Royal Society, uh, the Royal, sorry, the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, RSAMD. Um, but it's now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, the RCS. Um, so I had to change the name of my blog. So I changed it to A Viola Player Writes. Um, so I like that more. That's that's why I I changed it. Um, so yes, I I wrote on there a, f- a few years ago now um, an article which I'm quite proud of, which is an FAQs about the viola. So everything you you always wanted to know about the viola, but you were too afraid to ask. I think I, I think, read that. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff on there that people don't usually find. You know, they they find out when they start playing the viola, but they don't necessarily know before they play the viola. Um, so there's stuff like, um, what's the difference? Does it have the same strings? What's the music like? Which music do we play? What studies? Um, why is it that kids will play the violin first and then the viola? Um, and all of those questions, which you, you might not know if you're just a, a parent of a child who wants to start a string instrument. Sure. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot um, that people don't know about the viola because it's quite a, I won't say obscure instrument because all orchestras and string quartets have to have one. Have, yeah, um, a handful of them. You know, we, we, we're there. It's just not a lot of people <laughs> talk to us, obviously. <laughs> well, um, it, seems, it seems like um, all of the people who aren't viola players make the viola jokes, but then the viola people are like a very proud kind of solid bunch Exactly. We're we're always, I always say that viola players, we tend to be really friendly and happy. We tend to be the friendliest people in the orchestra because we've had so much sort of jokes, you know, people saying, oh, ha ha, you can't play, can you? You're playing the viola. So we we get a lot of stick as viola players. So I think with me anyway, I've had that. So I've just like, you know, I've absorbed that. 
and and I'm now a sort of friendly person as a result, <laughs> I guess, in orchestra situations. Because there's always the orchestra stereotypes, and I won't go into those because you've probably got listeners who are these players, but, you know, sure. violinists are quite neurotic, you know, oboists are mad, flautists. <laughs> What, what is it about flautists? I can't remember. Flautists are quite into like hair and makeup. I don't know. There's, there's all, and the brass players are just drinkers, heavy, heavy drinkers. Actually, I, have, uh, um, I saw an article about, I can't remember what it, I think it was titled The Truth About Orchestral Players and all this kind of profiling of the, yeah. of the things. Well, Hoffn- Penguin Hoffnung, if you, if you can get hold of a copy of the Penguin Hoffnung, he is a cartoonist and he has the most amazing cartoons um, that depict all the different orchestra players, the Penguin Hoffnung <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. And it's like the viola player one, I've got it on my wall, is like a viola player with a hundred cushions underneath his viola. And the cellist one is like, he's, he's just cellist, he's playing his spike actually. I think he's got so far down the fingerboard that he's playing his spike. <laughs> well, so they're very good and and i think like the tv show the office or whatever of the kind of the banter and interaction between co-workers yeah. uh, and cubicles kind of translates into you know members of the orchestra as well right definitely oh definitely yes and, um and that was kind of one of the questions that i wanted to ask from the standpoint of because we've chatted a little bit before about um solo things about string quartet things about orchestra mm-hmm. things do you, do you have a specific preference for one of kind of those settings of of performance or oh yes i do um from my experience i i prefer playing chamber music um i love playing quartets quartets are the things that i really really enjoy playing i also really enjoy um duo playing so sonata playing with viola and piano i think that's one of the most rewarding things i've done in my career so far is just work through pieces with a piano uh, you know a, a really top pianist um i've worked with some amazing pianists and it's just so so such a lovely relationship and you can have such detailed discussions about music about sounds um just just working with that combination of viola and piano um it's just very intimate and when you come to do the recital as well um the most recent recital i think i did was with my pianist douglas holligan who's actually a fellow graduate of um the University of St. Andrews, because I did my undergrad degree at St. Andrews, but we both did a lot of music and we studied uh, music for our first two years. There's no, there's no mu- formal music degree at St. Andrews, um, okay. but you can, you can take music modules in the first two years. And of course you can have lessons. And Douglas had lessons with one of the top pianists in Scotland, Audrey Innes, and he still studies with her. Um, so Douglas is my duo partner, partner just now, and Audrey used to be my duo partner. So I worked with Audrey for, for years, and we did lunchtime concerts every year, and we worked through a lot of the sonata repertoire, the Brahms sonatas. We did Hindemith most recently, Hindemith OP 11 number 4. Great sonata, amazing. Uh, he himself was a violist, wasn't he? He Primarily. was, indeed. That's what I thought. So, so with, with Douglas, we did... Um, we did York Bowen sonata in C minor and not a lot of people know about York Bowen. He's a, he's a British composer. Um, very, very romantic, was a pianist, was an extremely virtuosic pianist, but wrote a lot for the viola. There's a, there's a concerto for viola, which I had recently, uh, a little bit of, um, there's also a fantasy for four violas. That's quite unusual. A piece, a piece written for four violas. A concertant piece or just four violas. 
it's a yeah no it's it's a it's just oh, well. just for violas so york bowen is a great composer for the viola uh, and we played the sonata and just ju- it's just an amazing piece um so i think sonata repertoire um is just one of my my very favorite things to do with piano um with douglas we've got a project for october where we are preparing the a Shostakovich um, viola sonata, which is Shostakovich's very last work. So it's very dark. I've got it in front of me and it's quite, I haven't started learning it yet. Uh, it's very, it's very, very long. It's about 35 minutes in length. It is pretty big and it's, it starts very simply. It starts and ends very simply uh, with just pizzicato. Actually, no, it just, it starts with pizzicato and then it just ends with a very, very long note, <laughs> an E natural. Um, is, is Shostakovich, because, because you and I have talked a little bit before um, about some, some really modern stuff that I like, is, mm. is Shostakovich more modern than something you're used to, or is that kind of, kind of part of your language? Um, Shostakovich is, is probably there's a lot of romantic uh, music composed for viola, so we'll play a lot of Brahms, right. Schumann. Uh, so it, Shostakovich is probably it's in the middle, really, because there's also a, not a lot of new music composed for the viola. Um, so I went to a concert recently of a Scottish composer, um, which was included in uh, the concert. My teacher Jane Atkins, who's principal viola of the SCO, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, was playing, and she was playing a lot of new music in fact it was an amazing concert because it was a concert for um the very unusual combination of bassoon and viola and they realized when, interesting yeah it was really interesting two seo players and they said at the beginning they we they said well we realized when we tried to do this concert that there was no repertoire there was very little <laughs> repertoire for bassoon and viola so what we did they didn't just give up and say well we'll just pay, play sort of transcriptions they actually commissioned some scores oh wow uh, they, they put out a call for scores, um, which was amazing. So they got some responses and they played some of the pieces that they, they got. Um, and they were really good, really, really good. For bassoon um, and viola. Bassoon and, just bassoon and viola. They also played, a, um, I think, a Mozart transcription of a uh, viola and cello or bassoon and something like that. Um, so that was, that was interesting. How do those <clears throat> instruments kind of interact? It's it's tricky because um, so the bassoon is sort of cello register and the viola is right. just one, one octave um, above, but they're quite they're both quite mellow sounding instruments. And at one point, um, yeah, the, the bassoon is great. At one point, the bassoon is switched to contra contra bassoon. Oh wow! Um, so there was a, and the, the reason I'm telling you about this is there's a composer, a Scottish composer called Eddie Maguire, who's quite famous. He, he comes from Glasgow. And he's a flautist and he's a very, very good composer. So they played about three of his pieces and he's done a lot of um, viola compositions um, because he, he worked with a viola player who played in the BBC, I think, Jimmy Durrant. I can't remember. I think he was, he taught at the Academy anyway. Um, so yeah, they played um, some of his music and it's just incredible music. Um, but they also, the, the last piece they played, which was Jane on viola, Alison on contrabassoon, uh, was an arrangement of his ballet of Peter Pan. And can you imagine <laughs> the characterizations of Captain Hook and um, the Lost Boys on contrabassoon and viola? It worked so well. I can, um, yeah. 
because the crocodile especially they did the crocodile and it was just it was just brilliant um and they made it they made it so entertaining as well so i can see how that would be yeah it would it was it was brilliant um and i really enjoyed that concert so as there's a lot of new music being written for the viola it's a neglected instrument we didn't start getting pieces for example our concertos uh, compared with an instrument like the violin which i also play and the cello which i also play a little bit um our concertos are not not options are not good we have the walton concerto yep modern. we have the walton concerto uh, we have the bartok concerto which is very difficult. So those are two modern ones. Um, but in, in terms of our classical repertoire, Mozart sort of, we don't have any Mozart concertos. So what we do is when, when we have an audition and we're asked to play a classical concerto, <laughs> we have two options. And they're both a little bit not, well, there's the Stamets and the Hofmeister. They're both in D. They're both in, in D major. And they sound very similar. It's almost as if the composers were looking at over each other's shoulders saying, oh, I like that. I'll put that in mind. Uh, so obviously I think Hofmeister heard Stamets or the other way around because they're so similar. And they're both, they're both a bit sort of just not very interesting. You can make huh. them interesting, but we're just a bit bored. Viola players are just a bit bored, really. After, after a few centuries of, of, after, of yeah. repertoire. Well, yeah. get any... Because so if you string concertos, like you said, it's it's lots of violin concertos, lots of cello concertos. Do you get any concertos where you kind of look and you you see that the composer who wrote this viola concerto maybe is not as familiar with the instrument as he thought he was? Any kind of awkward writing or? Um, that's a, that's a question that that would have required me to play all the concertos. Well, no, <laughs> anything that comes to mind. I guess. Um, uh, not really, I'm afraid. I wanted to talk a little bit about this piece that I've got in front of me, which I would love to play with orchestra. Um, Harold in Italy by Berlioz. Have you heard oh, yeah. of that piece? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's, it's an unusual piece because it's, it's actually a symphony. In four, when I'm reading the, the cover, symphony, symphony in four, four movements with viola solo. And it's actually obbligato viola parts. So what it is... I forgot about that piece. What it is, is a symphony with obbligato solo viola. Um, but we sort of treat it as a viola concerto because sure. it, is, it is very, very virtuosic. Um, and I'd love to play this piece because it's brilliant. Um, it's very programmatic. And all the movements are little sort of... It's about it's about Harold, the child Harold. It's, it's based on a Byron poem um, about the child Harold um, who goes on a journey into Italy, obviously, um, and he goes to the Abruzzi Mountains and he goes and meets peasants and has a ball with the the, peasant, the peasants and the Italian people and um, all these little movements are about his journey. So the first one, um, it's all in French. My French accent is is terrible, but the first one is Harold in the mountains, um, melancholy, sad scenes, scene, scène de melancholie, de bonheur et de joie. So melancholic scenes, happy scenes and joy. Oh, joy. Yeah. And huh. then we have another movement, which is brilliant. Um, it's Marche de Pelera. I'm not sure what a Pelera is, but I'm sure it's a peasant of some sort. Um, and then this one, which is a serenade, which is in the Abruzzi Mountains, um, and you can actually hear, if you listen to the, if you listen to this piece, you can hear the little piccolos and the fifes of the sort of um, peasants, and it's just, it, it's very, very um, well written 
um, Berlioz was a master of scoring. He also sure. wrote the, the symphony, Symphonie Fantastique. Also very um, programmatic. Yeah, and he was, all of these, he, he invented the, I don't know whether you know, um, well, leitmotif, mm-hmm. um, but he, he, Berlioz invented the ide fix. Right. Um, which is the equivalent of, of a leitmotif. So in, in Harold and Italy, you have your ide fix, which is um, Harold. That is, the, that is the viola actually plays the part of Harold in it. And his ide fix is starts, the viola comes in at um, just sort of introduction. And it's, it's a sort of very slow um, D, B, C, E natural, and it's a very, very beautiful tune he just plays. And that comes back in octaves throughout the piece. And it's varied and it's sort of developed. But you always have, it comes back. Um, and so it's a piece that I would love to play. It comes back in the serenade in, in octaves. And it's just very, very beautiful. It's, it's not an uncommon piece, is it? Because I have heard no. of it, I've never, but I've never heard it in, in the concert hall. I mean, it's not an uncommon piece to play. Um, sure. I'm not sure the last time I heard it done recently, um, but viola players get asked to do it quite often because of because of that. But um, you need obviously a, an orchestra to do it. So really I've got the piano. Sure. Yeah, um, I've got the piano reduction and the viola parts, but I've never been asked to do it. Here's a here's an ignorant question for you. Um, say, for example, you you got a phone call tomorrow and someone says we'd love to have you do the bar talk. Mm-hmm. Or, or something How, you know what kind of what kind of lead time would you need to to get that up to stuff uh well it's quite a long time because i've not learned about bartok <laughs> so i don't know the bartok i know the the walton um which is which is one that all violas play and i played at college right um but to prepare a concerto that you don't know oof, that would that especially something like the bartok which is pretty tricky uh, that would take take me you know six a good six months i think um is that all because my my only kind of familiarity with with the idea of preparing a concerto is some friends in in schools here who are preparing uh piano concertos mm. and and they start kind of really early uh, they'll do a recital of just the first movement um you know with two piano version or something and, and mm. they'll spend a few years kind of working on it um but I have no concept of kind of the, the challenges of what that would be like. It's kind of difficult because for example, I'll give you a, an actual example that I'm doing. So the, the Shostakovich Shinata, I don't know at all. Well, I've listened to it, um, but we've got to prepare it for October and I'm looking at it now. And quite frankly, I should have started already. I'm behind <laughs> with it. Uh, so yeah, I shall be, that's my next job is to, to tackle this because it's a huge piece. Um, and it's got a lot of, um, just looking at it now, it's got a lot of double stoppings. Um, it's, it's quite an unusual piece. Um, so it's, it, I think this one is going to be one which we'll need to do a lot of rehearsing with because there's sonatas that, that just fit together with the piano. I mean, you always say they fit together, but you, you have to rehearse them minutely. Sure. Uh, but the Shostakovich, I think, will be a challenge in that in that way. And what was the just kind of the deciding factor in in choosing this as as the work? Um, um, the deciding factor was us us doing a pros- proposal um, for the University of St Andrews. It's their lunchtime concert that we're doing it in. I we're see. Also, we're also doing it um, 
in Edinburgh at, at the Edinburgh Society of Musicians. Um, that's also in October. But the deciding factor was actually the concert's um, administrator, Fixer, the, the Fixer. Um, he looked at our proposal and said, yes, I want to hear, I, I'm really intrigued by this piece. I want to hear this. So please, will you prepare this for the concert? So it was kind of an assignment. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it got it got given to us. I <laughs> Douglas see. Is very, Doug, Douglas is very keen on it. I um, well, that helps. Yeah, I need I need to listen to it properly um, a few times and get to know it. Um, I've I've heard it performed by Yuri Bashmets, um, who's obviously one of the the top viola players in the world right now. Sure. Um, a few years ago, my abiding impression was of it was it, it was just quite dark, quite impenetrable, just to listen to. Um, not easy listening, which is obviously Shostakovich right. is not easy listening, um, but quite difficult to approach, um, which was why I was, <laughs> let's say, reluctant to do it for a lunchtime concert, yeah. uh, which is, we often choose sort of, you know, quite accessible, light lighter. Um, but Chris Bragg was definite. He said, yep, we definitely want this. So, Okay, that's then. what we're doing. We're also we're also doing to pair we're, we're to pair it to sort of offset the Shostakovich angst. I'll call it. <laughs> uh, we're doing a Vaughan Williams romance for viola and piano. So that's something that sounds more lunch friendly. Yeah. So that's a short. That's a short about ten minutes, nine minutes piece, which I also have to learn, um, which has got lots of double stops in it. Um, so yes, that's my work cut out for me in the next few months. I uh, guess. It sounds like it. Well, that, that, but uh, so then, like you said, those those two kind of very contrasting pieces. What kind of um, I, I don't know headspace? Like, what kind of mentality do you have to get in if you're gonna if you're gonna play something like the Shostakovich? Um, you know, convincingly, not as a not as a homework exercise, but but mm. something kind of that dark. Yeah, that's a tricky question because um, I haven't played a lot of Shostakovich. Is it intimidating? Um, I think I'm, I'm quite intimidated by it. Um, I don't listen to a lot of Shostakovich for the reason that it is dark. I've played the, um, the fifth symphony. Oh, it's uh, wonderful. It is wonderful. It's very, very big piece. All the symphonies are huge. They really and are. And actually as, as a player, I always say that Shostakovich, the notes aren't difficult usually. And I'm saying, I say that guardedly because I'm looking at the notes <laughs> here and, uh, the notes tend to be quite straightforward. It's the the rhythmic ideas and the the sort of the emotion that's attached to them. Right. Uh, for example, the slow movement of the Fifth Symphony is just heartrending um, with the oboe solo. It's just very difficult to listen to. And I've actually read, um, I did that when I was a teenager, and I our conductor advised us to read uh, Shostakovich's memoirs, which oh, I then okay. did, which I don't think. A lot of teenagers wouldn't have done that, but I, it's called testimony. And I don't oh, wow. remember a lot from it other than I just came away with the impression that, oh my goodness, Sostakovich had a pretty raw deal. Because the oboe solo basically in, in the Fifth Symphony, I was told at the time when I was playing it, was basically the lone voice, the dissenter against the masses. And of course, do you, do you know about the ending of Shostakovich Fifth? Do you know why it's that triumphant ending? Um, the, you mean the, the timpani things coming from, from yes. Mahler three? Do, do you know why, do you know why it's so triumphant? So it's, it's a false, it's a false victory. Sure. So it's basically two separate crowds. Yeah. 
it, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, Shostakovich was was condemned by Stalin for being formalist on multiple um, occasions. So that's on multiple occasions. So that's why um, that ending is so so weird because it, it it's the perfect cadence over and over again, and the timpani just keep going. And Stalin clearly thought this was amazing, but the rest of the people knew that this was just Shostakovich's condemnation of all that he stood for, um, and he just was he was just messing with him so oh, it, much. It, it, it's and, such a such a balance of of the two kinds of appeasing who he needs to appease, yeah. talking to who he needs to talk to. Yeah, I mean, it's just very difficult to, for us to know the historical context and to listen to Shostakovich's pieces. Um, so I've, I played a little piece called The Gadfly. Uh, Shostakovich wrote lots of little character pieces, and The Gadfly is, is one that's often played on different instruments, cello, violin, I think, maybe. Um, so I played that as a teenager, and it's just a lovely little tonal piece, and it's just very innocent and sweet. And you think, oh, yes, that's not what nice. I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something lovely. like his, was it his festive overture, one of those he wrote in like a couple of days and it's, you know, bright and fun and as the name would suggest, festive. And then mm. his, you know, the majority of his 15 symphonies are, are the exact opposite. Mm. Yes. And the sh- well, I've got a, a little experience with the string quartets, which are pretty dark. Um, there's the DSCH one. Sure. Um, do you know about that one? Um, I don't know which one it is, but that's a that's a thing that happens in lots of his works. Yeah, so he his, spells out his yeah. own name, um, D. Dmitri Shostakovich, um, using the D the um, E flat. I think it's D E flat C B. But I yes, don't know that's quite right. How that the, they're very close chromatically. That's what I remember. Yeah, that's that's what I remember. So that that's the theme that runs through that particular quartet, and I can't again, I can't remember which one that is. Um, but it, playing his quartets again, they're very intimate. They're very dark, and they seem outwardly quite simple, but they get more complex rhythmically in the middle. And it's quite, a, it's quite. I think playing Shostakovich, you have to be in the right emotional frame of mind as you said, the, the headspace to play that kind of piece convincingly sure. and not sort of, you know, have a, have a, I don't know. You just, you just need <laughs> a lot of mental preparation to do that. So some of the, maybe some of the experience with the quartets will kind of help, but maybe with the, the mm. sonata. In fact, I meant to, I meant to go listen yeah. to the, to the sonata. I need to, I need to go find that because you mentioned it and I didn't know that that was, you said his very last piece. Hmm. I think it's his very it's be... OP one OP one four seven. Oh wow! So it, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. I think it's it, it's supposed to contain all of his life, all of and you know his thoughts about death. So that's why well, I'm slightly intimidated it by it. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm slightly intimidated to play it. I spoke to my teacher that I was playing it. She said, "Oh yes, fantastic, fantastic work." <laughs> Is like, it common okay. in front of yep. the repertoire? Uh, well, it's part of the sonata. Yeah, it's part of the sonata repertoire. So, yeah, I, I guess it, it is in any violist's repertoire. Let's have a, I've got actually. I printed off Lawrence Power's repertoire list, <laughs> and he obviously he does a lot of um, concertos. I'm just sure. going to see if it's in his repertoire. Uh, that's music for viola and piano. He, yes, it is actually in his repertoire, huh. and so is Seven Preludes for viola and piano. And there's obviously there's a lot of Hindemith that gets played sure. because Hindemith um, wrote a lot for the viola. 
um, and he was a viola player. So there's a lot of sonatas. There's also solo sonatas. Um, so there's sonatas with piano. There's one, two, three of them. Um, there's a con- there's two concertos. There's the I can't my my German accent is is terrible, but it translated. It's the Swan Turner Desch Van Andrea, I think it is. Um, that's oh, that's one concerto. Yes, and Trauer Music Music is is another one uh, concerto with orchestra. Uh, but music for solo viola. There's four sonatas which are just which is quite unusual just unaccompanied viola just on its own a sonata uh so there's four of those so Hintermit was writing clearly a lot a lot for viola um as it was his instrument i I believe he played the piano as well Um, my understanding was that he played i think a little bit of everything because he wrote he wrote a few books on orchestration and i I get the impression that he He was Um, conductor, composer, performer. He was kind of a triple threat of, you know, he seemed to be kind of a genius. Yes, indeed. I understand also recently you told me uh, you went to a master class. I did indeed. Yes, that was Attending last or as, a, as a performer weekend. or performer. As a performer. Um, actually, <laughs> interestingly, you know, I haven't been to a masterclass for years. And last weekend I was at a viola one, um, which was, a, it was part of a workshop day. Um, but also during the week on Wednesday, I took my own violin students because I teach the violin a lot. Um, I took my violin students to another masterclass and one of my students played in a masterclass. Oh, nice. Um, so that was interesting as well. Um, so at the one at the weekend, um, oh, it is, it is definitely <laughs> nerve wracking. Um, the, the one at the weekend was with um, Martin Outram. I think that's how you say his name of the Magini Quartet. He plays in the Magini Quartet and he does, uh, he does lots of workshop days just for the viola. And this one was um, intended for just any, any viola players. And there were 10 of us. Um, and we spent a lot of time actually during the day, just playing viola ensemble music, which doesn't happen in real life. That uh-huh. never happens. So- wonderful it was wonderful to play uh we played telemann we played some bach that had been arranged for 10 violas lots of arrangements and transcriptions we also played some wonderful um i think it was finnish music by a composer called palmgren um and it was really beautiful really well well scored um for the viola and had lots of harmonics and it was very evocative Interesting. Um, so we, we had a wonderful time. But the masterclass itself, we, we each got a sort of slot of about 10, 20 minutes, and there were 10 of us. Um, actually, some people didn't participate, so I would say there were probably about six of us who played in total. And um, Martin was very good with everybody. There was a huge range of, range of um, abilities at the masterclass. So uh, the difficulty I find with a masterclass is... It's, it's nerve-wracking. It's a one-off event uh, in your life. And normally what would happen is, obviously, you'd have a teacher and then you go to a masterclass with someone completely different. Right. In actual fact, I've, I've been to a, a masterclass with my own teacher, uh, which How's has its own work? set of... Yeah, that way. It's more like a lesson. So you have to, a lot of people don't really know what a masterclass is. So I will just just clarify. It's where you play a piece to someone you've never usually had a lesson with, you're in front of a crowd of people, more, you know, 10, 20, can be a lot of people, um, and they give, you play your piece through, and then they will give you feedback 
on your playing and maybe go through some spots in the music, say, you know, you could do this differently or you could try this fingering or this bowing and immediately you'll hear an improvement. And that was very obvious on Saturday um, where Martin said a few things to, to some participants and immediately the sound was better. And it's incredible when that happens. You just you just tweak very very small things, and immediately you get an improvement. So that's that's a good masterclass. That's a, a very good example of what can go right in a masterclass. There's all all, all sorts yeah. of things that can go wrong in a masterclass <laughs> situation. Um, so it's 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 a bit problematic a masterclass um, because you're in front of a lot of people. You're nervous. Things can go wrong that never have happened before. Sure. Um, so masterclasses are are helpful. I find them helpful on a good day. Um, but sometimes people have bad days and they play badly, and then then the person instructing them doesn't really know what to work on, and sure. it's difficult um, because they're coming in blind as well, right? Exactly. They don't know the person and they don't know the issues perhaps with their playing. And uh, it's hard, it's hard as, a, as a mentor or a, a teacher to be in that situation. And it's also hard as the person playing um, because I felt I've had, I ha- I've had masterclasses in the past that the person has completely dismantled you and it hasn't been very pleasant. They've said sure. something like, oh, you know, this, this is not, this is not very good. Let's sort this out. And then you feel terribly self-conscious in front of the, the people that are the there. Audience. Yeah. The audience. Um, so it's very hard, but you know, a good, a good teacher won't do that. Right. Um, of and will be aware, but it's, it's, it's also hard to take everything in. So, um, I actually use my iPad and videoed it. I got someone to video me playing, which was extremely that's helpful. That's a good idea. Yeah. Then I can watch, I can watch it back and see see the things that were, were talked about. Um, sort of in college, you get a lot of this. You get a masterclass sort of every month or something. Wow. So, and people end up, well, that's in an ideal situation. I never, <laughs> I think I had, I had one, I think, and it wasn't a viola player, it was a violinist. So it was, it was actually, um, have you heard of Ilya? Ilya Grin, Gringoltz, he's quite famous. I had a, a little session with him, but it, it, oh, again, cool. it was more of a lesson. It right. wasn't a mask. It was supposed to be a mask class, but it was only me and the pianist and him. So it was, it was really just a sort of lesson. Um, but it was really, really good. Um, so yeah, what was it? Sorry. What was your question? What, um, for this recent master class, what did, what did you play? What, what did I play? The, the piece I question? played a little bit of, um, the Beethoven Noturno, which is a problematic piece in itself because <laughs> it's a transcription of, um, a Beethoven string trio and it's, it's definitely been arranged for viola and piano and the viola then plays the viol some some of the violin part, some of the cello part, and some of its original viola part because the string trio is violin, viola and cello. Right. And then the piano Um, picks up the rest. Exactly. So it was the first time I'd played it and I'd only got the music about the week before. Um, so I was busy sort of swatting up and it, it it didn't work terribly well in a masterclass situation because we tried to play 
the um, end movement, which is a theme and variation. So I played the theme, and then I discovered that the, the second variation, the first variation, was just piano, which isn't in the string trio at all. Um, so we skipped <laughs> that one, and then we went on to the, the second variation, which is the viola solo, and that's the original. So we did a bit of work on that. Um, so it was helpful, but it, it's in a masterclass situation. It's also difficult because you haven't played with a pianist before. So oh, that's we, right. We were having difficulty. Exactly. So it's it's always a bit sort of rocky. Um, And it's not an ideal situation. Nothing is ideal about a masterclass situation other than you get some very, very expert device. Um, And often they can pinpoint exactly what you need to work on, which is good. Um, But the whole whole process of preparing for it is, is quite difficult. I didn't mean to uh, end the first part of our conversation so abruptly, um, but that was a good stopping point. Um, the next half of this conversation will continue um, in a few weeks. I'll put that up. Um, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, look forward to uh, an episode featuring a very, very friendly and very interesting pianist who is working on some fascinating projects um, that will be coming up in the next few weeks. All of Jess's links to social media stuff and her blog and her Facebook page um, are in the description of this episode. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, or via the blog fugueforthought.de, fugue, F-U-G-U-E. In the second part of our conversation, we talk uh, more about, obviously, the viola, frightening things with viola surgery, getting them on planes, uh, as well as what Jess is going to be up to this year and where you can see her perform. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be all for this episode, and we will see you guys next time. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>